You're listening to the Man Overseas Podcast, a show that explores methods and ideas to help you live a bigger life. You will hear interesting stories of how people live, how they save and invest their money, and why having time wealth is better than being a billionaire. If you are entertained, educated, or elevated, be sure to hit the subscribe button. We're just getting started. Now here is your host, Brad D'Antonio. Hello, beautiful listeners. I love the smell of March in the morning. My guest today is Benjamin Wall. He's originally from the UK, and he's even got the accent to prove it. On the episode, I ask him which ladies love his accent the most, because I figure as we strive for excellence in all that we do and aim to live our best lives, we're only going to get there by asking the important questions. Am I right? Is that an important question? Am I right? Did they say, am I right, in 1836? You ever wonder things like that? That's the sort of thing that bounces around my brain when I'm trying to fall asleep at night. When the wife is wondering if I'm thinking about the big boobs on aisle 18 at Costco that afternoon. And I don't know how Ben and I got to talking about this in the episode, but Ben has a keen insight on masculine-feminine roles in society. I'll give you a small example. He shares his view on why Fifty Shades of Grey was such a popular book with women. And I gotta say, he's spot on. Which, of course, that conversation led us to a discussion on the ever-evolving roles of males and females in society today. If you're not tired of hearing that yet, because we've talked about it quite a bit here, especially these last few episodes. But it's important, and you 9 to fivers a lot of times can't talk about it, at least not honestly. So hopefully you see it as two random dudes maybe doing you a favor. So Ben is quite candid about where he sees things headed in society, especially with the ubiquity of social media. But Ben's lived as colorful a life, I would say, as colorful as any guest I've had on this show. You know how I'm always encouraging people to read? You know one of the coolest things about reading is is this. I've never in my life described someone else's life as colorful. And I just did it twice about three sentences ago. Where does that come from? I had to have read it somewhere and it was stored in my brain. I imagine the same way that songs are stored in the brain. And one of the reasons reading is so encouraged is because you know you can sing the every word to Ice Ice Baby or every word to Poison by Belle Bill DeVoe. No, you can't? Okay, well, pick another song you know all the words to. If you were to read an important book over and over, you would internalize so much of what you've highlighted, for example, and it would benefit your life. So... I'm convinced of it and totally bought into that. So I will read and reread my highlights. I actually sent, the reason Belle Biv DeVoe came to mind, I actually sent a text to a client the other day. 
He's about 25, 26. And I said, just to make sure he was ready for the call, I said, you ready, Ron? And he said, yes. And that's when I knew he didn't know. (laughs) And he said, because when he said yes, that's not... That's not the Bell Biv DeVoe song. So I realized, oh shit, that's before his time. Because the proper response to You Ready Ron is, You ready Ron? I'm ready. You ready Biv? I'm ready Slick. Are you? Oh yeah. Break it down. Girl, I must warn you. Anyway, today's guest, by the way, that's that's from 1991. So we're talking 01, 11, 21, 32 years ago that that's still in my head. So I think reading can have a similar effect. And it and I've seen it work for me for things I've read when I was 23 that I've reread some of the highlights every year or read thing reread things in my journal quotes and things that I've been able to internalize just because I've reread them so many times anyway that's why I brought that up today's guest may be the most interesting that I've had with the exception of of one I'll go ahead and say it, Jorge Valdez. You'll remember. The guy who was Pablo Escobar's right-hand man in the United States. So nothing against you, Ben, when you hear this guy. It's it's tough to top some of his stories. They are equally incredible, if not more, and I'm afraid some of them might have edged yours out, but you give him a run for his money. That story that Jorge told about his plane going down in Panama and negotiating directly with Noriega for his release, there are parts of that episode I still think about regularly. If you're someone who enjoys an incredible story, you've come to the right place. By the way, if you haven't heard that Jorge Valdez episode, I don't believe I was numbering episodes back then, It was published June 10th of 2020. Okay, back to my guest. He lives in Playa del Carmen, Mexico. Part of what makes him so interesting is he's lived in Costa Rica, South Africa, Thailand. He's from the UK. He's had the small town UK experience. Well, I don't know if Bristol is a small town, but at least smaller than... London, I would presume, but he's also lived in London. Wait till you hear the story about he and a buddy who were backpacking across Southeast Asia and how he survived the tragic tsunami that hit Phuket, Thailand, in 2004. If you've ever been to Thailand, especially PP or Phuket, you got to hear this episode. When I was there, I couldn't stop watching YouTube video clips of what had occurred there because it was unreal. The way the water receded and everybody went out on the shore. 
just to they had never seen anything like it and I actually experienced something similar when I was there the water disappeared I mean went out probably 400 500 yards where I was staying and I remember walking a hundred yards out with the friend I went with and how stupid was that and that was at PP Islands so interesting to think about now but you feel so bad for all those people none of those people who were on the shore made it there's no way I mean they were that was a 30 foot tsunami I believe Anyway, I love Thailand. Those are some of the sweetest, most genuine people you'll ever meet. Put it on your list if you've never been there. He and his buddy headed to Chiang Mai after the tsunami, and I love Chiang Mai. Hey, maybe there's a shirt I can buy next time I'm there that says, I heart Thailand. You think they have that shirt there? Do you think 500 years ago people said, you think? (laughs) Who knows? Before I bring on my guest, know that if you're planning a trip to the Riviera Maya area, Ben has a company called Prestige Planning Services that you may want to look at. There will be links in the show notes, of course. But first, enjoy this episode because he is the most interesting and inspiring guest I've had on this show in a while. Let's bring on Mr. Benjamin Wall. Ben, welcome to the show, man. I'm so glad you're here. Thank you so much for inviting me. That accent is something. Do the ladies love that? Yes. They do. I bet they do. <laughs> Certainly. Um... Who loves it the most? Canadians. Really? North Americans generally, but Canadian women tend to be drawn to it. I mean, it's, I haven't got a lot else, so right. I'm going to lean on the accent as much as humanly possible. Dude's built like Zeus and he's got a big brain and he's, he's saying he doesn't have anything else. And you're from, what, London or? Originally from London. However, I spent most of my life in Bristol, which is on the south coast of the United Kingdom. Bristol's a really cool city. It's famed for being very kind of creative. It's born out of a maritime history. It was at one point the largest port in the world, which means that as a result of that, it's very multicultural, very diverse. The likes of Banksy, I don't know if you've heard of Banksy, the artist is from Bristol, as is Massive Attack, the group Massive Attack, Tricky, Stephen Merchant, who co-wrote The Office with Ricky Gervais. Wow. Which office do you prefer, American or British? British, Not obviously. even close, huh? Yeah. I mean, I, we invented sarcasm and uncomfortable humor. <laughs> yeah. Americans kind of adopted it. And I'd like to think that Stephen Crowell has done a relatively good job, but he's no Ricky Gervais. The original is always going to be better. But do you even like the American The Office? Does mm. it appeal to you at no, all? No. I've tried no. to watch it on several occasions. Wow. Um, I just... I can't get my head around it because my experience of The Office is The Office with Ricky Gervais, which was groundbreaking, as is a lot of stuff that Ricky Gervais does. It's very kind of close to the mark, very uncomfortable. It doesn't appeal to everybody. And I know without sounding too kind of disrespectful, a lot of Americans don't get that kind of level of humor. 
self-deprecation and being sarcastic yeah. uh, and uncomfortable humor generally. But British, we're great at that. We're great at, at putting ourselves down and we're very comfortable in doing so. I remember visiting Paris. I was visiting a buddy who's German and I was walking across the street near the Moulin Rouge. I had to cross the street to get to him mm. and he couldn't stop laughing. And when I got to him, I said, what are you laughing at? And he said, you are so American. And it was just the way that I walked. What was it about the, it's the just characteristics of your walking? that Bravado, like my feet kind of point outward, my chest sticks out, my butt kind of comes out. And he says that nobody in Europe walks the way that I do. Do you think that that's then a, a representation of the American attitude, the culture? I guess. The I, don't, I don't know. How does confidence translate to a walk? I have no idea. I mean, it's not a conscious thing. I am a confident fella. But I never think about that when I'm walking. I was always taught to, to walk with purpose, but that doesn't necessarily mean sticking your chest out <laughs> right. and, and your ass. I don't know what it was that you were looking for um, <laughs> or where you were within Paris at the time. But Near the Moulin Rouge. Yeah. Oh, well, that says everything then, mm. doesn't it? Uh, Does it? I, I don't know. <laughs> That's just where he lived, I think, um, near there. Yeah, I believe it's important to have intention walk with purpose. I was told by my father, walk into the room like you fucking own it. Now, that doesn't necessarily mean you have to be aggressive. I don't like the term alpha. I think that's overused. But as a male, I think it's very important to show a level of dominance and confidence in mm. any situation. There are different gradations of alpha, right? Like I talked about yesterday, and I'm diminishing myself. But walking down the street and the girl's eyes are going to you and not me. But if I'm with my five foot six buddy, the eyes are coming to me and not him. So just then start hanging around with someone Shorter that's vertically people. challenged, like a dwarf, <laughs> for instance. That's all you need to do. See, we can't say dwarf anymore. Is Britain getting to the point where there are words that you can't say? Like you guys are huge on the C word. Are you referring to cunt? That's all you got. Every other word is, is, is that there's word. There's certain areas of Britain that that is kind of, it's kind of used, it's not even a swear word. Mm. So you could say, you funny cunt, you hilarious cunt, or you <laughs> fucking cunt. Or you could say, pass the cunt in water. What? Not a, yeah, it's not a term that I use. I'm quite old fashioned. I would like to kind of describe myself as an English gentleman. And gentlemen don't usually swear. Mm. There are certain incidents that I will swear, and that that would be for a specific reason. That's to accentuate a particular feeling, thought, based upon the situation. But there are certain areas of Britain that is literally every other word. It's just quite comfortably slid into a sentence. <laughs> Whereas I know that Americans, it's still kind of quite shocking to hear the word it's the worst word that you could use and i think it is because not only what it refers to nope i take it back the n-word you would never use that word no i would never use that word <laughs> <laughs> let's just let's just clarify i certainly do not use that word but the c-word we have a a very strange relationship with the c-word i don't yeah. know if we invented it but we certainly own it. Yeah, we certainly own it's it. It's like you think it's so funny because I see it on my Facebook feed with my British friends and I'm like, that's not funny at all. <laughs> we call it dropping the C-bomb. And I've been at work before. I remember I was in a meeting about 9.30 in the morning and a friend of mine used the word and I was like, whoa, it's 9.30 in the morning. It's too <laughs> early to be dropping the C-bomb. Do you know what I mean? I'm still on my second coffee. Do you know what I mean? You just need to chill out a little bit there. 
I don't know how your listeners feel about this, but being English, we're kind of quite defensive of the language. So we believe, or not all of us clearly, but there is a belief that if you then reliant upon foul language is because you don't have the ability to articulate yourself, mm. which I believe. Mm. And I think it's all too easy to use foul language to replace certain words because yeah. you don't have the ability to articulate yourself correctly. Read a fucking book. Please. <laughs> Nobody's reading books anymore, by um, the way. Well, listen to an audio book. Um, <laughs> but yeah, the, the, C, the C-bomb, yeah, it's not something I use. Mm. Yeah, but yeah, very casually used. I mean, originally from London. And yeah, there's parts of London that it's kind of literally the other, like every other word, pass mm. the fucking T or you fucking cunt. Like, and it could be used almost as a kind of derogatory term, but of a term of endearment as well. Mm. It's not something that I choose to use. And I think it's disrespectful to women. I think it's unnecessary. And it's a very, I would say it's a vulgar term. At the very base level, it's a vulgar term. So it's not something I use. You're an alpha gentleman. I don't know if such a thing exists, but if it <laughs> didn't before, you've certainly coined the term. I've always believed that you should hold yourself accountable to your actions. You show a level of responsibility, decorum, confidence, strength, but compassion as well. And dropping a C-bomb doesn't go with those traits, I don't think. I'll buy that. I think men generally uh, have become very confused because you just touched on the whole political correctness thing. I think we've become very confused as to what our roles are within society and they are ever evolving. That is in part because women's roles are evolving, which is very positive. I think that unfortunately women are still perceived as second class citizens in a lot of cultures, a lot of countries. Um, in the West? Certainly. Although I think women's kind of rights and liberation is certainly more proactive in the West than it is elsewhere. But within that, we're in a space where men are then, not all men, but a lot of men are feel almost embarrassed or confused by their sexuality, their role within society, and whether or not it's acceptable to be dominant, which is a real shame because we have to remember that we are made up of chemicals, hormones, and so on. And you and I, are made up of testosterone, which is a predominant male hormone, which we've had since the beginning of time. Women are made up of estrogen as well as other chemicals. And these chemicals have specific traits. For men, that includes confidence. It also includes anger and the, the ability to protect. And I think those are sort of traits that are still relevant today as they were hundreds of thousands of years ago. They're, they're not as required in the modern age as they were when we were in caves. We don't face, for the greater part, the same levels of fear. We don't require ourselves to be protected or protect others to the same degree. But it's nice to know it's available to you as and when it's required. That's a good point. Yeah, I think women treat men differently because... One of those has been taken away, the protection aspect of men. Since they don't need it, they don't have to be as nice to you. 
I say this all the time, but police forces are only 200 years old. So prior to that, you better be nice to a man because you may need him sometime to protect you. And I think there is an inherent, the risk of sounding chauvinistic or patronizing or God forbid sexist. I think there is a need for those very kind of clear roles. And I would argue the point that for most women at some point they do require a man to be stable strong protective reliable someone that's dependable someone that makes them feel safe and i question any woman that says that they aren't traits that they would look for in a male and if they say they don't Maybe they're They're lying. They're lying or they're looking (laughs) for a very different type of man. And I'm not suggesting these men have bravado or they have that very old fashioned machismo attitude towards relationships and women. I'm just simply saying that there are certain traits about being a man that you should be proud of. There are certain things that come out, whether it's a Ricky Gervais shtick or a book such as Fifty Shades of Grey, that just sort of rip the fabric of society wide open and say, oh, wait a minute, somebody's lying here. Oh, the the, the Fifty Shades of Grey thing. I mean, firstly, that's nothing new. I was doing that in my 20s. (laughs) I mean, the fact that you had like housewives that led very kind of sheltered sexual experiences up until that point that then became enthralled by this idea of being dominated. Well, you'd clearly never had great sex before. If you had transferred that situation into a working class home, essentially that would have been abuse. But because he was glamorized as this billionaire, self-made billionaire who was attractive and lured this woman who was virtuous and had no prior sexual experience and then sort of introduced her to a world of hedonism and dominance and submission. Yeah, that's basically abuse. That was taking advantage of someone. And all of a sudden, all of these women were buying these books and all these guys were thinking, wow, I can I become Mr. Gray. And I even <laughs> had seen it referred to on social media about I want to find my Mr. Gray. You can find that guy down local pub that's going to absolutely <laughs> abuse you and, and fuck every orifice. Do you know what I mean? And tie you up. That's not hard. The difference is he doesn't own a helicopter. That's do you know what right. I mean? Yeah. And have a red room. Mm-hmm. So... Anybody that bought into that just hadn't had great sex or wasn't particularly sexually liberated or was exposed to that. And you can't then, as a female, really appreciate that book and the the contents of that book and be titillated by it and then say, I don't appreciate male dominance or that role, because that's exactly what he was within that book, within the confines of the book, is no different from the Twilight Saga. It's exactly the same. If you read into it, this is about a man that was incredibly dominant, led a very hedonistic lifestyle, identified a a virgin, and turned that virgin. It's exactly the same. And these books sell because there's something inherent in a lot of women that still require a dominant, physically, mentally dominant man to take control of a situation. I have dated numerous women. God, that makes me sound terrible. Well, you're 45 years old. Yeah, chill out. There's no need to tell the listeners about that. (laughs) I I didn't marry until I was almost 38. I've dated quite a bit of women myself. And 
I find women that are confident, sexually liberated, intelligent, independent women to be the best lovers, but also the best kind of companions because they have their own opinions. They've led a, a kind of a great life with various different experiences as a result of which you have more to talk about. The sex tends to be better because, as I say, they're more sexually liberated. But I found that those women that certainly in in kind of relatively high positions within their career, their chosen field, they definitely want a dominant man because they make lots of decisions in their life. And for a moment, they just want to stop having to make decisions. So whether that be about what we do for dinner or where we go at the weekend or whether that be in the bedroom, they've had enough of making decisions all week. They want to then be able to withdraw from that and allow a man to take control, which goes back to the very simple roles that men and women have. So that reconfirms it to me. And not all women are like that and certainly not all men. But if you ask a lot of women about men and dominance, most women that I speak to at least find it very unattractive that a man is indecisive or doesn't have the ability to take control or doesn't look after themselves or isn't confident or doesn't have the ability to protect them in some way. Or is spineless and doesn't stand up for himself. I think that is one of the biggest turnoffs for women. Yeah, no woman likes a guy that is going to beg. And I think we're all in a situation where we like that act of being pursued or pursue, but not to a point where you lose respect for yourself. <laughs> We've all been close to it, admittedly, but I think that's very important. So did you grow up in a home with clear roles, masculine, feminine roles? We did you grow up with a, a mother and a father in the home? I grew up with a mother and a father in a home and two sisters who were from my mother's previous marriage. My childhood was quite traumatic at times. The roles were very confusing. My sisters are older than myself. And as I say, they are born of a, a different father. My mother was very feminine, had a very clear role. She was beautiful. She was intelligent. She was creative. She suffered from mental health issues, as do a lot of people. But she was unconditional with her love toward all three of us. She held down a, a full-time job. She kind of, yeah, raised three children. Well, four children, including my father, really. Um, <laughs> she... She did the very best that she could with the tools that she had. She had um, quite a traumatic childhood herself, which resulted in a level of mental health issues that, that were never fully resolved. Is this like anxiety, depression? Depression and quite kind of... Neuroticism, maybe? No, more depression and quite kind of extreme behavior. Not violent, certainly, but quite extreme behavior at times. My father was a very different character. So my father grew up in London in the 40s, 50s, after the war, born of Italian heritage. A lot of Italians kind of moved over to, to London, seeking refuge either during the war or after the war. He lived in destitute poverty. His father was in and out of prison 
throughout his childhood so he was passed around from one uncle or, or an aunt to another i believe he had 16 or 17 uncles and aunts it's catholic they didn't believe in contraception or pulling out obviously <laughs> for that matter so he bounced around family members so he didn't have a lot of consistency as a child his father was in and out of prison his father was a spiv what's that a spiv these were villains that took advantage of the second war so he was in a, a tank regiment my grandfather he was he was quite an interesting character george and he was a spiv so spivs were you probably had the same thing in the states where you had villains that took advantage of situations within the second world war so where there was rationing for instance beans cotton silk was a big one food generally they had ration books so as a as a family you were attributed x amount of beans sugar coffee and so on each week spivs would hijack these lorries mm. for instance they would look for opportunities and one of the biggest things they did was hijack lorries that had sugar and so on that were then kind of sent by the government to provide local communities with their rations and they used to hijack them with shotguns or what have you and then resell those products on the black market so he was in that prison he came from a, a, a very kind of volatile background as did my father my father was a violent man very colorful character he he was the he was the person that really kind of provided me with the the passions travel he traveled a lot during the 60s he kind of followed that kind of road around sort of turkey then lebanon and all up through afghanistan and so on india a lot of that, unfortunately, was also currying drugs, I believe, as well as taking vast quantities of but yeah, opium, probably, right? Yeah, if, probably. I mean, Afghanistan, there's yeah. no other reason to go. No, there's probably still no reason to go to Afghanistan. Yeah, the poppy to be fields. Yeah. But yeah, he was quite an interesting character. He was colorful. He unfortunately instilled in me lots of contradictory kind of pieces of advice. He was violent. He Toward whom? He could be violent toward me. He was very intimidating character. He could be very intense. Uh, you look intimidating. Do you realize that? I'm aware that I look intimidating. Yeah. I'm six foot one. I've got a shaved head. I'm tatted fully, up. Yeah, fully tatted. Fully uh, tatted. Muscular guy. But I'd like to think that the way in which I hold myself and the way that I speak to people kind of leads people to believe that actually i'm not a violent person i was certainly a product of my environment but yeah my father instilled in me various different kind of morals and principles you have to remember that in the 1960s 1950s 1960s in london especially there was this moral code whereby how can i describe it you're a gentleman you behave in a certain way so it's this bizarre concept and i'm sure that other countries have the same concept whereby you would open a door for a, a female and slide out a chair for her to sit down but if somebody looked at you the wrong way you shove a, a pint glass in their head <laughs> it's a very strange concept there's no middle ground my father was 
was very charismatic, very intelligent, very manipulative. And yeah, he, in his formative years, very, very aggressive. He was in a prison. He was a bank robber. A bank robber. Yeah. At what age are you when this is going this on? This is prior to... Prior, okay, yeah, prior so to you being born. This would have been in the 60s. He, uh, he was a bank robber. He was a burglar, so a thief, basically, used to break into people's homes. <laughs> this is an odd story. But he used to work with a guy. They used to target high-value homes in like the likes of Kensington in London, Westminster. People with vast sums of money. And he was from... He was from a, a very different kind of environment and they used to go into <laughs> these houses and rob them of the jewels and so on. But the guy that he used to do the robberies with used to get anxiety and would need a shit and would always end up shitting <laughs> in the house, <laughs> in the house. <laughs> which used to slow that process down slightly. <laughs> so not only would the unfortunate individuals that own that property find that all of their jewelry had been looted, they'd find this massive turd <laughs> somewhere in the house. I'd like to think it was in the, in, in the toilet, but you never know. So yeah, he was quite an interesting character. Well, that was probably... Like, we've heard that in Britain, they're a lot more jealous of success. So, like, if you drive a, a nice Jaguar or Mercedes-Benz, you're much more likely to get it keyed when it's just parked on the street in London than in New York City, for example. I couldn't comment on that. I, really? I, I, yeah, I think by nature we're quite a negative people. I think we, we, don't, we don't value or promote success as we should. I certainly don't think we motivate one another as do other countries. I, I lived in Australia for a while, and one of the first things that I noticed was that people promote success. They support one another with that. We are quite a negative race. I don't know if that kind of that stoic stiff upper lip. I don't know if it's the weather that does it. But yeah, growing up in that kind of environment, it was it could, there was certainly a and there was animosity for people that were born into wealth. My father instilled that in me, and I think that was really unhealthy. And mm. he always had that, which is really unfortunate that you that you kind of you're intelligent and articulate. Yet you have this, this innate kind of disdain for people that were born into money. And I, th I grew up with that and I believed that for the longest time. My well, I'm sorry. It is different. You do view people differently who are born into money versus those who made them money for themselves. Of course you do. Yeah. But someone had to have made that money initially. That's a good point. So my father, yeah, his, behavior could be quite erratic and he on hindsight i think suffered from bipolar he would have really dark periods and then he could be quite erratic with his behavior and have quite high highs but yeah very difficult to live with there would be i as a result of that had quite severe anxiety for a long time because i never knew what i was walking into i didn't know for instance, him coming home from work, I wasn't aware of what I was likely to to find, how well, it was going to be received. What was work for him? So he was in, in and out of prison for quite a long period of time. And he became a, a probation officer. So he would then manage members of the public that had recently come out of prison. 
and essentially kind of managed their living arrangements, their job, in the hope that they would then kind of become responsible members of society. And it was a job that I believe he was very passionate about. I think there was an element of him looking back on it that he probably still quite enjoyed the culture of being surrounded by crime. That never really left him. So he would still be, there were certain traits that he kind of presented even when I was a kid that were quite criminal. And I always felt that we were closest and we bonded over those kind of conversations more than anything else. He was very proud to tell me stories about his childhood, about his experiences. And that's really how we bonded. Whereas kids bond with their fathers, usually over, for instance, soccer. Um, he would regale me with stories of being in prison or being stabbed or tell me some crazy story about a scrap in the East End of London or... And what, at what age did that start? When did he start sharing all that? I, oh, and was he not concerned that you would turn to a life of crime? I think there was a point... Well, he was certainly glamorizing it. Yeah. So I don't know what his motivation was. <laughs> that was from quite a young age. Yeah. So as opposed to playing, for instance, soccer with your kid, he used to play fight with me, but to a point where he would teach me quite severe techniques of how to hurt people, like gouging people's eyes out. Or there's something called fish hooking, which is basically inserting your thumb into someone's mouth and tearing their mo mouth open. Mm -hmm. That's not normal. That's not the sort of thing that, that you should be sharing with your son. He once told me a little pearl of wisdom from my father, Ricardo Anthony, was whether you're blagging a wage van. Blagging a wage van. Which is basically hijacking a wage van, oh. which was quite common for villains in the 60s. So you'd have a wage van, for instance, that would carry the weekly salary to a company. And blagging it would basically be rocking up with a shotgun and a balaclava, and basically kicking the driver out and driving off with it. So whether or not you're blagging a wage van, robbing a bank, or shagging a tart, which is basically sleeping with a woman, do it in style. <laughs> and that was installed into me from an early age. So as opposed to suggesting that you should treat everybody with respect and dignity and don't judge a book by its cover, I was given that advice. So for the longest time, I kind of, I really wrestled with, who I was and what I wanted to be. He continued to work within the probation office for, for a number of years, I believe around 30 years, but he still had his moments of violence out of that and certain behavior that was certainly inappropriate, irresponsible. And then unfortunately he got into a situation as a result of an altercation that he had, whereby he then kind of, I think he ruminated on it and kind of there was a part of his past that came back. He felt he was taken advantage of. And we in England, we call it, it's called a liberty. Someone's taken a liberty. And that's a very kind of agitating feeling if someone's taken a liberty, mm -hmm. taking advantage of you purposely. And for a man like that, from that kind of background, that's something that's very difficult to tolerate. He unfortunately went back to this person's premises with a knife and that person called the police 
and uh, the police turned up and my father had this knife, this carving knife, and he was brandishing it. At this point, he's like 59 years of age, like ridiculously irresponsible, not only because he has a loving wife, but he has children and he's 59. <laughs> but nevertheless, brandishing this knife, resisted arrest, a fight ensued and my father sustained quite severe injuries. They had to take him to hospital and they had to operate and he basically had a heart attack and died on the operating table. Oh my God. So as you can imagine, there was an inquest because essentially he was in the care of the police force when this happened. So right. there is a level of responsibility in theory by the police force. There was a separate inquest as well held and another post-mortem. So they didn't release the body, I don't think, for three months. So we couldn't have a funeral for about three months. It was in the papers, obviously, because someone's died at the hands of the police. Because essentially those injuries that he sustained resulted in his death. He had never had any previous heart complaint. So there was a question mark about whether or not there was a heart complaint. It was, And if there was, that was because the pressure placed upon his body through the injuries that he sustained. So it went to court and it was found that it was lawful and there was no repercussions for the officers involved. And as you can imagine, I was very angry, bitter. At what age are you at this time? I was in my 20s. And at that point, I was, I was already aware that the, the kind of the behavior that my father had presented and I guess some of the, the messages that he gave were not only untrue, but destructive. And I kind of distanced myself from my father at this point. It was a very difficult relationship generally. I loved my mother dearly and I would see her frequently, but I would struggle a lot of the time to spend any time with my father. I just couldn't relate to him. He was a very difficult individual to be around. He died, but irrelevant of that relationship, of course, I was left with a lot of anger. Toward police, toward him, authority. toward life. He, he installed a very unhealthy respect for authority generally because he'd been in out of prison and institutions his whole life. I wanted to join the Marines when I was a kid, when I was 18. I wanted to go straight from college because I'm quite academic. I have a passion for, for learning. I wanted to study English and history and go straight into the Marines as an officer which I think would have been the greatest thing that could have happened because it would have been stability. There would have been structure, organization, all the things that I required to succeed. And he basically talked me out of it because of his level of disdain for authority and institutions. Mm -hmm. So when that happened, obviously my, my mother fell into a deep depression and I was left just feeling very angry for a long time. And I was I'll be honest, I was quite a volatile individual anyway, as a result of my upbringing. And I became quite self-destructive. I drank a lot. I got into numerous altercations. And I'm not by any stretch, imagine, glamorizing any of it. These are things that I feel had the ability to kind of shape the person that I am now. But there's some guilt around it mm. and remorse, although I don't think it's healthy to hold on to that too much. I but it's necessary to learn from. And it took me quite a long time to kind of resolve that. 
my mother had always suffered from mental health conditions and, and she found that very difficult. We finally had the funeral. And at that stage, I took the decision that I was going to go traveling is what I needed. I needed to remove myself from the immediate situation, take time out to reflect. And that's the reason people travel. They want to experience something new. They want to be in a different environment and give themselves the opportunity to sometimes either reinvent themselves, find themselves, reflect. And I went to Thailand, Thailand, Cambodia, Vietnam. And this was, yeah, 20 odd years ago. Where'd you get the money? I'd worked quite hard at that point. I was working as a doorman. I don't know if you call it a bouncer. So I started that when I was about 17. Okay. And I was also working in a, a nutrition store as a nutritional advisor. So I was doing two jobs. Uh, by sort of 18, I was running my own door firm. And not to say that I was the kind of the biggest or the strongest or the toughest guy there, but I had the ability to articulate and manage a team at quite a young age. So I was managing guys that had kind of been in prison for long periods of time or been in forces. I worked with a guy that was a sniper in the Marines. I'd worked with villains. I worked with boxers, like professional boxers and so on. I worked with a guy that went to the Olympics and represented his country in judo. And all these guys were a lot older than me and a lot more capable than I was but didn't necessarily have the ability to articulate themselves or manage certain situations without just going from zero to a hundred. <laughs> so I started doing that when I was about 17. So I was earning good money there, but I was working four or five nights a week. I was doing the day work as well. What uh, kind of day work? It was managing a, a nutrition store. Oh, okay. So we sold whey protein, creatine, so on and so forth. I was from a very young age, very passionate about fitness. My father was a uh, secretary of a boxing club. So from a very young age, I was introduced into boxing. Again, quite a violent yeah. sport. But what boxing does for a lot of people is provide some structure, stability, and an ability also to control or regulate your behavior. And there's some accountability. So it's something I think really helps a lot of young men and women. And I saw that benefit myself. So I went to Thailand and had a fantastic time. And which uh, part? So we went to Bangkok. And when you say we, I was with a partner at the time. A partner uh, that doesn't translate in American English. Oh, does it not? Female partner. Oh, so okay. um, a young lady. Okay. Um, <laughs> we went to Thailand, Cambodia, Vietnam. So we went to Bangkok. We went down to the islands. So we went to Koh Samui, Koh Phangan. Kotao, and this is like 20 odd years ago. So it was very rustic then. Oh, yeah. And it's beautiful. We lived there for a while, and I did some of the healing I needed to do. God, that sounds like a cliche. But that was simply being in an environment that posed no threat to me. Did you go to PP? Very serene. I will come to that. Right, I will come to that. Then we took the decision to go to PP, Krabby, and Phuket. So we went to a cluster of islands around that area. And we were in Phuket. We went to PP, which was beautiful. And I believe this was maybe a year or so after The Beach came out, the film. Leo DiCaprio, right? Yeah. Written by an English writer. And it was beautiful. It was pristine. It was tranquil. It was paradise. PP was still a very kind of undeveloped island, very rustic great snorkeling great diving and i was very happy there 
We went to Phuket. We decided that we were going to treat ourselves to a nice hotel for Christmas. And unfortunately, we got caught in a tsunami. Whoa. So when there's some that? irony there that I went to Thailand to kind of heal. Oh, six, maybe? Oh, four, I believe oh, it was. Four. And I had this amazing experience with this beautiful young lady. And it wasn't without its problems. I was traumatized, not only from my childhood trauma, but from my father's death, my mother's emotional state. I should probably say now that all three of us dealt with our, our childhood trauma and our abuse in different ways. One of my sisters, she's a therapist. She's very healthy. She's very happy. She has two beautiful children, a loving husband, a crazy dog. My other sister, unfortunately, is a recovering heroin addict. Oh, wow. So we all took very different paths. So I then went to, to Phuket with my partner and unfortunately was then subject to what was probably the worst natural disaster in our lifetime. Incredibly traumatic, as you can imagine. Something that I think scarred an entire country for probably the foreseeable future. Um, had ramifications, as far as I remember, as far as to Africa, felt the, the kind of reverberations of that. What a terrible time for that. As you can imagine, having experienced quite a kind of traumatic period of time in my life, going to Southeast Asia with the hope that I would kind of find some peace and solitude, and then experiencing probably what is the greatest natural Tragedy disaster. ever. Um, yeah, in our lifetime. Was there any warning? None. 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 There was apparently warnings out at sea. There are certain procedures that are followed but because it happened so quickly there was no real time to prepare for something like that how do you prepare for something like that yeah. i don't think any country could have realistically prepared for it certainly not what was essentially a third world country so the morning of the tsunami was i believe boxing day which is what date the would be the 26th 26th of december the day after our Christmas. Yes. So it happened relatively early in the morning, from what I recall. A lot of this is kind of, I don't know if it's subconsciously blanked out, <laughs> but. Wow. I kind of, some of it is my memory and some of it is information I've picked up. Yeah. Because for the longest time, I didn't really want to think about it. But as you can imagine, Boxing Day, people are on vacation. They're sat on uh, restaurants cafes and so on on the beach enjoying a hangover breakfast with their family their friends celebrating christmas there were diving expeditions out at sea there were boat trips there ferries going from one side of the island to another people were just getting on with their lives and with the tsunami the water recedes mm. so it almost kind of gets sucked back how into fast the sea. does that happen I couldn't say. I couldn't say. It, mm. it's, it's a very quick process. Like five minutes or like an hour? Oh, minutes. Mm. And the problem is, as humans, we don't always like to accept there's something wrong. We always, if you notice something about humans, we fear a lot, but we tend to wait till the very last minute <laughs> to act. And I don't know what that is. 
So there's fight, flight or freeze response. But I, I don't believe it's that. I think there's just something in innate in us that thinks ah, it's not going to affect me. It, it's, it's ignorance, probably, or, or a level of arrogance as a human being that you're infallible. So people saw this kind of receding wave came and a lot of people failed to do anything about it. They sat there having their coffee, eating their brunch. And then this, this wave starts, it's like a snowball effect. It gets larger and larger and it picks up more and more momentum until the point it hits the shore. The point it hits the shore, it absolutely decimated everything in its path. And I'm talking shops, hotels, cars, practically anything that was in its way. So if you were in, for instance, a, a four or five story condominium, if you're on the roof, you'd probably be okay. You unfortunately have to watch as this unfolded, but at that level, you'd be okay. The levels prior to that would be flooded. So you can imagine the level of devastation. Instant flooding, probably, right? Instant. There's no way to stop. Uh, it, the force is phenomenal. Wow. It's, it kind of really makes you think about nature and just how powerful it is mm. and how little control we have over everything. And that really is something that, that has stayed with me. We have very little control. There's, there's things that we have the ability to control, certain variables. And then there's the wider stuff. We've got no fucking control over. And that's something we certainly don't have any control over. And it absolutely decimated that area. And this is Phuket. This, which, which part of Phuket are you? I've been to Phuket a few right, times. So we were in Patong, I believe. But obviously, PP got hit because PP was basically, if you've, been to PP that yeah. you would remember that I don't know what it looks like now, but it was very rustic and it was at sea level. Everything was at sea level. There was a mountain yep. top, which I believe was like the safe point, yep. but everything was at sea level because that was the nature of the way it was built. And that again was just completely flattened. The mountain was flattened? No, no. The, the oh. town itself. So the mountain that had that beautiful view of the, the bay, yeah. that was pretty much the only safe mm -hmm. space but people there are certain individuals that are going to to be able to act quickly when we talk about that fight flight response but for a lot of people they just simply were unwilling to accept that this is serious that this is going to happen or they will freeze people i think generally they like to feel comfort they like to feel that they're in a bubble and i think certainly westerners we feel quite entitled. We're, we're not exposed to too much danger, really. So when you're presented with something like that, as a, as a vacationer from the West, you probably don't think it's going to affect you that much. And as a result of that attitude and how quickly that situation developed, it had terrible, terrible kind of ramifications. So we were very lucky we managed to find a hotel and we stayed at the hotel. And I remember like you're running at this point or yeah. And we were safe. We were safe, but it was the aftermath that was more traumatic. Why were you so safe? Was it at an elevation? That... Yeah, we were at an elevation and we got into the town. 
like Phuket town, which was relatively safe. Now, from what I recall, Phuket town still has waterways within it. And there were boats just literally washed up onto the, onto the street in the town. And we, we stayed at hotel. We managed to find a hotel and we sat on the steps of the hotel in the evening, I think just kind of in shock and probably quite traumatized. I remember this image of just seeing people. It was like the walking wounded. It was like one of those images you see from like the Vietnam war or something or world war two. And you see casualties. People were just in shock walking around with just a pair of board shorts on because that's all they were wearing at eight o'clock on a, on a boxing day morning. That's all they have left. Didn't have a passport anymore. Didn't have a credit card. Didn't have a wallet. One flip flop, no money, nothing, no phone, no way of contacting loved ones to let them know that they're okay or order a new passport, credit card, get money out from an ATM, any of those things. We just watched this unfold and it was surreal. Oh, but it was like, it was like the walking dead. It was just really strange. Now, plus, you know, thousands of people are lying in the water dead i'm sure people floating around cars were like if you went back onto the beach there were cars that this water started to recede thai community was fantastic and i think the international community were very quick to react because there's a lot of international tourists there big haven for Europeans, North Americans. So they acted very quickly. They had to. So the embassy very quickly kind of dispatched individuals out there. I would imagine either the UN were out there or Red Cross. But that scene was, yeah, there were cars just floating around in the street, bodies. A lot of people had similar injuries from like lacerations on their legs and so on, because what happened is as the waves came in, they smashed through shop windows and so on. So a lot of glass mm. tables flipped over. And at the time, my partner had contracted a kidney infection and E. coli, as does happen when you eat street food in Southeast oh, Asia. Yeah. So she was on a course of antibiotics. So we still had to go to the hospital every day for these antibiotics to be administered. And that was the most horrifying experience of my life that first day. Because firstly, no taxi driver would take us, understandably. So we had like- You don't have money to give them. Why would they do that for you? Well, we had money. Oh, you did? Yeah, we had money because everything was still back at this hotel. Oh, okay. So we were relatively safe. Where we were staying was actually out of reach of it slightly out of reach but where we were obviously we're in the midst of it so we were actually in a much better position than a lot of other people were Mm -hmm. so we still had money passports luggage everything oh wow okay great very fortunate very fortunate and previous to that they would charge us 50 baht for instance to take us to the hospital each day to administer this treatment and they refused to take us They didn't want to go to the hospital. I think they were, as absurd as it sounds, they were worried that another tsunami would hit. But that's also understandable considering what's just happened. And also they they didn't want to be exposed to it. 
Now, we managed to find a taxi driver that took us probably for about three times the amount. We got to that hospital, which was a very small hospital in Phuket, catering to people with a broken leg, people having stomach pump because they drunk too much alcohol or, for instance, infections. Just a, a, a very basic hospital, really, um, that was then really facilitating tourists. And I don't think there's any hospital could really have the ability to deal with something of that magnitude without any prior kind of management and planning. So to ask a, a kind of a, a small hospital in Phuket to, to kind of manage that situation efficiently, it would have been unrealistic. We got there and it was pandemonium absolute pandemonium there were corpses outside in the car park the the a and e room was just carnage people on gurneys sort of going to and fro people quite clearly that had been abandoned kids crying and oh my god um, i didn't even think about kids that were separated from their parents the the image that will stick with my mind for the rest of my life Somehow they still managed to see my partner and administer the uh, antibiotics. But the image that will stay on my mind forever would be this chap that was kind of wheeled in in a wheelchair. He must have damaged his legs. And I think he had with him one of his children, but must have got separated from the other child and was reunited with the other child and that i just i nearly cried at that point i'm about to cry right now watching this scene it was like yeah. there is some humanity mm. that it is going to be okay the realization by this guy his face his expression changed dramatically the realization where's your mum? he assumed the other child was with his mum. Mm. that child didn't know where the mum was oh no so he'd gone from this, this feeling of elation to having his family reunited to then realizing that his wife was still missing. I don't know what the story, how that panned out. I don't know. Mm. But that was enough to tell me that was a really fucked up situation. We, we had to go back a couple more times. I think it was like five, five days continuously going back to have this medication administered because she was actually in a lot of pain with the E. coli and the kidney infection. And we took the decision, we just wanted to get out of that area entirely. So we took a bus from Phuket up to Bangkok. And then from Bangkok, we went all the way up to Chiang Mai, wow. which is absurd, really, because basically what we were doing was just running from something that had already happened. But in yeah. our mind, we just wanted to get away from that. Yeah. I think more of a psychological reason behind it. It wasn't really rational. And Chiang Mai is a very different environment. It's a, a lot more authentic. The food is different. It's a cooler climate. We went hiking and it was an opportunity to decompress. And actually it was the right thing to do at the time. So that was Thailand. Dude, that's unreal. I've been to PP twice once in 2014 and then again in 2019 and between those 
two visits, they have built up on the mountain a shelter that everybody can run to should that happen again. And you wouldn't believe, by the way, how many hotels and stuff have been built. You know how you arrive on PP, you look right and left. It used to just be nothing but barren Mm. land. It's all hotels and stuff now. Well, I don't know if you're aware of the, the reasoning behind that. There's very controversial move made by the local government at this point. So you had, if you recall, kind of more of a backpacker kind of vibe there. Definitely. So you had guest houses, you had uh, lovely little restaurants, a couple of boutique hotels, but it was very casual. PP was decimated and large corporations, landowners and local government chose to take advantage of the situation. A lot of those people that had lived in PP, as I'm sure a lot of people lived all over Thailand, probably experienced much the same thing, no longer had homes, businesses, because there was no insurance. They couldn't afford insurance. I'm not even sure if insurance is a concept for those types of businesses, because they were shacks, a lot of them. And that land had been passed down from one generation to another. So essentially it became that land. Unfortunately, what had then happened was the government had taken advantage of your situation to say, essentially, we're going to displace you because you built that hotel, that restaurant illegally. You didn't ever own that land. Mm. You kind of had it by proxy. So what they did is displace all of those people and then sell that land off to large corporations. So that's now why you see larger corporate hotels, more extravagant boutique hotels, restaurants, and so on, is because essentially those individuals were then kicked off their land. So not only did they lose loved ones, their business, their livelihood, their lives, they were then kicked off the land. Oh, dude, if I had known that, I wouldn't have gone and spent money there. But I, I've never been back. You're making me not want to go back. No, I mean, I, I, no, I, I, I would certainly not. That's certainly not the kind of the aim that I, I still think that putting money into the local community in Thailand is something that would be really beneficial because you've got to remember as well, they were closed throughout COVID. Uh, this year was really the first year that they were fully open for mm. tourism. That's certainly not the purpose of, of what I'm saying. I'm just illustrating the point that there was a lot of greed Mm. and as is human nature and they really took advantage of that situation it's probably the same in mexico and parts of mexico it happens land is sold from under people for the benefit of huge amounts of wealth it happens in every country in one form or another but it's just unfortunate those individuals were displaced and it probably changed the the kind of culture and the clientele were originally attracted to the likes of PP mm. uh, and what it then represented, which was this really liberal, creative, very s- spiritual environment. And that's a real shame. I'm not saying people should go back. I couldn't go back. Maybe that says something about me and my inability to heal. But that whole layer, I've been to Thailand since. I went to Bangkok, flew into Bangkok, went to Samui, spent some time in Koh Yang. Went back to Koh Tao because I love it. Great diving, beautiful sunsets. But 
I think it says something that I chose not to travel to that side of Thailand. And I think that's because it's too emotive for me and I'd have to be in a very strong place and I'd probably want to do that with somebody that I cared about deeply to be able to experience something mm. like that again. I couldn't go back to Phuket if I were you. There's no way. Yeah, I, I, I would question the reason that I would want to go back. Yeah. I had actually thought about going back to Thailand. I debated it last year as, a, as opposed to coming back to Mexico and making Thailand my home. But I think there's too much that's happened there. Uh, it's not to say that I wouldn't visit Thailand again as a holiday, what you guys call vacation. Um, for some strange absurd reason considering it's the English language and I'm English but the prospect of going back there I would question really why I felt the need to do it closure no mm. it was like 20 years ago I don't need that closure yeah. and I've accepted it as I have past trauma why would I want to revisit it and go back into an environment that looks entirely different has a completely different vibe what would my intention be? So I've chosen not to do it. But it's not to say other people shouldn't, because it is a beautiful country. The food is amazing. Thai street food rivals Mexican street food, which I would say is the best two street foods in the world. Yeah. The culture, because they're Buddhist, it's more like a philosophy, which is really present when you interact with people. People are kind, they're compassionate by nature. Beautiful beaches, beautiful sunsets, still very cheap. It's a wonderful country with yeah. a lot to offer, certainly. Oh, yeah. It's one of my favorite countries easily, especially the fact that it's diverse where you have Chiang Mai with the mountains and you can hike. And then if you want to go south, they have the city life of Bangkok where you have all the rooftop pools and Labua. Yep. That awesome hotel. By the way, they charge like $45 a drink now on top of Labua. I think the hangover did that. Yes. Well, I think the hangover started the tourism there. And then once they realized, like, I don't, I don't know if they didn't know or what, but when people started coming, I think Instagram jacked up the price because they then built a pink bar underneath the top. Mm. And what they do is, shovel you into this pink bar as you're going up the elevator and try to sell you this $1,000 bottle of champagne mm. or something and sell you a $60 drink. And then they'll let you go up to the next floor, which is outdoors. And yeah, the first time I went was 2016 up there. And it was like, I want to say $18 a drink. It's phenomenal. I don't know what the average salary is for a Thai living in Bangkok, but I think that would probably surpass most. I mean, a thousand dollar bottle of champagne is, is kind of, would be unachievable to most Thais in their lifetime. Oh, definitely. Yeah. It's disgusting. Yeah. Yeah. It's all for tourism, but that pink room I felt like was just for Instagram <laughs> and to try to get you to spend a lot of money. Isn't Tulum any different? We have the same thing in Tulum. We have a, a situation where we had what was a, a beautiful, very liberal, spiritual environment that attracted very creative people that then became like a caricature of itself due to 
Instagram yes. due to social media. So it then became this really cool boho vibe. And not to say that it's not beautiful and there's an amazing architecture and amazing hotels there and restaurants, but you're essentially being sold a dream, you're an image. And it's very pretentious. Oh, yeah. And I think that's a real shame. I went there about 12 years ago and I went back quite recently and I was just astounded by the cost, the cliche, the, the irony that you go somewhere, everyone's trying to be independent and look different and they all end up looking, looking the same. same. Yeah. There's, there's some irony in that. <laughs> like the, this kind of whole idea that, and I'm not disrespecting vegans or yogis because I, practice yoga myself i i found it incredibly useful this idea that you kind of this boho chic yogi that just eats acai bowls and then does three grams of coke on a saturday night <laughs> do you know what i mean uh, there's like pick a lane and so much of this is about just simply capturing images for instagram yeah a lot of these people aren't believing this lifestyle that was originally kind of adapted and kind of professed in Tulum, which is about collaboration, supporting one another, spirituality. It was just one of those places that like-minded souls went. Mm -hmm. And then it became this monster. Yeah. And as a result of which, huge sums of money are being made. Vast quantities of cocaine are being consumed. And it's lost that appeal, I think, unfortunately. Vagabonding couldn't be written today, right? <laughs> the book, have you read it? I'm sure. Yes. No way it could be written. So what happens next? You go to Chiang Mai. Uh, we went to Cambodia for a short period of time. They eat deep fried tarantulas in Cambodia. So we left there. <laughs> Vietnam was an amazing experience. Yeah, I didn't like Cambodia. Other than Angkor Wat, I could skip Cambodia. Yeah, I feel somewhat guilty in... I guess slurring an entire country, but yeah, Angkor Wat would really be the highlight for me. There's very little else in, in, in Cambodia that I kind of, I remember or felt that really added any value. Yeah. And when choice. I went, it was hot as shit and you had to cover your body because it's disrespectful. Like if you don't cover up to go through Angkor Wat. Well, no one asked me to cover my body, obviously. Oh, because it's already covered. <laughs> oh, no, just because I look great. So. <laughs> And then we went to Vietnam. Vietnam was fantastic. Hanoi, Ho Chi Minh, Trang, De Lat. And that was on the cusp of, of backpacking. Again, 20 odd years ago. So it, yep. it was a very different experience. It was way behind Thailand, as was Cambodia with tourism. And as a result of it, that it was a lot cheaper, a lot more authentic. That was great. Then I kind of felt that, right, I needed to, to join the real world and become a productive member of society again. So I came back to the UK and I thought it was time that I, I kind of formed a career. And there's some irony in this, that my father was a bank robber. I actually <laughs> worked for uh, Lloyd's Bank for the next 15 years. How about that? Yeah. And I think I did that because it was safe. It represented stability structure it was very corporate it was kind of all the things that i probably needed as a child that i didn't really get that security the stability the structure knowing where i was day to day no real kind of 
scares as it were i would clock in at nine leave at five o'clock i went to an office sat in front of a a computer and i did what i had to do for five days a week and i was surrounded by very mediocre (laughs) individuals that really kind of exceeded at being mediocre and safe and secure but i always had that passion for travel and they, none of the, the colleagues that I worked with had any idea about my background, about my father, about my, my trauma. And it was kind of, it was almost like a, an opportunity to reinvent myself. I just kind of slipped into society a little bit. And I'm very grateful for those years, although as an individual that was kind of, it was instilled in me to really question and challenge authority and institution i still did that a little bit and that certainly would have hindered my career i would imagine at points i also felt very grateful that i was given that opportunity and it provided stability and a huge amount of confidence the skills that i i gained as a result of working for a such a large organization were were fantastic. So I'm very grateful for that, certainly. What sorts of skills? Organizational time management, the ability to speak to large groups of people, the ability to manage my own finances as well as others, having challenging conversations at times, working as part of a team, working on my own initiative, all things that you need to sort of glean as an adult really yeah so you do that for what 12 years you said 15 years 15 years did that 15 years in london no this was in bristol okay we moved to bristol actually when i was quite young i was about four four years of age so okay. bristol was real really my home and i worked there for about 15 years and towards the end i started to get itchy feet i don't know if you're aware of that term it's a british term i can uh, context clues i, I yeah, get what you yeah. i mean <laughs> what you the mean. great thing about working a large organization you have the ability to move laterally you can gain promotion go into other areas of the business and it's a it was a huge business so i did various different roles within that business it's harder to hit a moving target so after that i kind of i'd been in that situation for about 15 years and unfortunately over the course of the the final year of employment my best friend died very suddenly of pneumonia. Pneumonia? Yeah. So he wasn't a, a particularly healthy individual. He used to bodybuild. We were friends for 20 odd years. But quite a big guy. Took a lot of performance enhancing drugs. Consumed vast quantities of cocaine. So it wasn't a particularly healthy character as it was. He, but does that stuff affect the lungs? Isn't pneumonia sort of lung-related? He, he actually contracted a, a chest infection after a, a particularly heavy weekend, what we in the UK call a bender. Yeah, yeah. And he contracted a, a chest infection, which led to pneumonia, which I suspect as a result of his poor health generally. And he, he basically was found on a Saturday morning on his kitchen floor. Uh, after several days of kind of no communication with with yeah. friends, neighbors, 
family members. But he wasn't sick leading up to those? Only the pneumonia, the chest infection, that was it. But he had this bender, and this is my own theory on it. He had this bender over the weekend, contracted the chest infection on like the Monday or Tuesday, and I think it got severely worse. He was quite overweight as well. He was using a lot of drugs, had previously used a lot of steroids, and I think his body wasn't capable of managing that level of stress and unfortunately was found by a neighbor on the kitchen floor which which sucks it's not a great i mean there's no great way to die but to die alone on your kitchen floor and without sounding too kind of morbid what are your final thought when you're on the kitchen floor by yourself in the last throes of your existence that's not a great place to be so I received a call from his sister the following morning and we proceeded with the, the funeral arrangements. And because I had worked in the bank, I had a knowledge of how to manage an estate. So I supported with the, the execution of the estate and so on, uh, which I felt was the way that I could support the family. Were you all the same age? First yeah, yeah. No, he mm. was a year older than me, I believe. Mm. He was a year older than me. And how long ago was this? This would have been about four years ago. Um, so so that, nothing to do with COVID, pre-COVID. So maybe five years ago. It's okay. pre-COVID. So that happened. My mother at the time, she was suffering from Parkinson's. So I'd at that point already made the decision to rent my apartment out and moving with my mother and care for her full time. But obviously I was still working in the bank. I had quite a stressful job. It was very target driven, very corporate. And I had my training and what little kind of social life I had outside that. It was, it was mentally and physically draining. I bet. So I would prepare my mum in the morning and then come home and cook in the evening. And I was no saint. Sometimes it was difficult. It was frustrating. I was, there was sometimes, I'll be honest, some, a little bit of animosity there. I'm, I'm at this stage, what, 39, 40, and I'm, I'm becoming a full-time carer. I have no love life to speak of because who's going to date a guy that's living with his mum at 40? (laughs) I was working a job that at this point really added no value to my life. It was well paid, certainly, but it didn't add any value. It wasn't fulfilling which is something we should all strive for. And my mother had complained of a stomach upset, quite severe pain in her stomach. Now, I didn't know this at the time, but Parkinson starts to deteriorate your internal organs. Basically, what she was experiencing was her internal organs breaking down. So we had no prior knowledge of this. This just happened that like one morning. I called the ambulance. She was in a lot of pain and she was the type of typical British person of that generation that was very stoic, that didn't like to make a fuss. So I knew that she was in pain and asked me to call an ambulance that time. She wants to see a doctor that I knew it was quite serious. So I called the ambulance. They couldn't identify what the problem was. So we got her into hospital directly. And I was told by the doctor within an hour of being there that it was kind of critical and basically her internal organs were breaking down. And at that point they weren't sure whether or not she was going to make it. And this was quite a lot of information to kind of take in. 
at this point. My sister's at work, so I'm, I'm, I'm trying to contact her and, and I'm successful in contacting her. My other sister, I don't know where she is at this point. Being a, a heroin addict and a, an alcoholic, it's very hard to keep track of her whereabouts, her behavior and her ability to function generally. I called my uncle as well, explained the situation and they took the decision that they would induce her to a coma because it was the best way to stabilize her, put her in a coma and she was in hospital for several days in a coma. And it was quite obvious at this point that there would be no quality of life. And there was a, a fear that had they brought her out the coma, that she would die as a result of the, the stress placed upon her body. So about three days in, we had to make a decision that we were going to essentially turn off the support and that she would then die naturally which they suggested would be anywhere between an hour and 24 hours. So I managed to get hold of my other sister and explain the situation. And she actually arrived and there was my sister, my other sister, their children, my uncle, and we were in the, the hospital in my mother's room and they turned off the machine and it actually happened very quickly. Now, at that point, I think this was all my mum ever really wanted, ironically, was that my mother was there. She was unconscious, obviously. There was myself and my two sisters, and we were around my mother, and we were supporting one another and all holding hands. And I would say that's one of the most beautiful experiences of my life. It was pure love. And that there's some irony in that. And we can't all be in the same room together. <laughs> we can't you can't put us all in the same room together it, it'd be like world war three yeah but in that moment all that really mattered was the love for that individual and those people coming together to support one another and there's something very beautiful in that yeah and she passed wow and that's four years ago yeah so obviously that was a very difficult situation that was a very difficult six months really uh, experience and loss of my best friend and then my mother and then having to deal with the estate sell the property do all of that sort of stuff was again very kind of challenging yeah um i had support from my uncle and my sister obviously it was a very difficult situation now at this point i was still working my employer was very understanding very accommodating as you'd expect them to be in the 21st century but COVID then hit very quickly and the UK took very strong measures, which included at one point the inability to leave your house for any given period of time. We then were able to leave our house for a maximum of an hour a day for exercise. However, nothing was open bar grocery stores. <laughs> we weren't allowed to visit friends family members in their home and i was on my laptop in the spare bedroom looking at a spreadsheet and i just thought what the fuck am i doing <laughs> what is what's the purpose of this how is that adding any value to my life all of the trauma that i've suffered and the most recent losses that i've had staring down at what could be at that point 
the end of the world because that's what we were led to believe why am i sat in my spare bedroom looking at a spreadsheet mm -hmm. so i had a conversation with my supervisor and uh, gave a month's notice and utilized that month to kind of identify where i could travel freely costa rica and mexico were the only two countries at that time that were were open to tourism uh, i'd previously gone to costa rica i loved the lifestyle loved the nature i loved the the culture the the kind of the genuine like pura vida kind of lifestyle absolutely um, it seemed the right place for me and i was very happy there there are direct flights from san jose to to cancun so it was logical for me so i came to playa i used it as a base i spent some time in merida went to mexico city obviously uh baja so spent some time in la paz cabo toro santos but found myself drawn to playa and i think playa because it's very multicultural there is a community here i go to a gym called evolve on 5th avenue and it, i would say it's kind of the the, the premium gym here in yeah in i go there too when i visit yeah and yeah. and as you'll know as a result of that they have managed to create a a fantastic kind of culture there is a real community people from all over the world and it's an amazing place to network and collaborate with people mm -hmm. you, there's people from france from switzerland from germany there's people from uh, the states canada a few people from the uk so i'll apologize on their behalf now <laughs> there's mexicans colombians argentina well argentinians have basically just invaded <laughs> playa yeah. um which is not a bad thing they're beautiful, beautiful. um so it's become a, a kind of a hub and i've experienced that hub in various other places around the world where somehow for whatever reason people identify a particular area and are drawn to it and what happens is like-minded individuals are drawn there and that reinforces that and i found it to be home for the force but nothing's permanent i've learned that through various experiences nothing is permanent but what it has done is given me a base and the opportunity to meet some amazing people i mean i met you through a mutual friend yes she was on the podcast actually and i the one thing i remember her saying is ben's she, amazing no, no not, been, not okay. That. okay she said that she was from russia so she had never seen an elephant in real life and thought that they were just magical creatures and then her dad took her to thailand when she was a kid and that was like oh my god they're you know she thought they were just in the movie it's been two or three years since she was on but i'm glad she referred you to me because you have an incredible story oh there's so much more <laughs> but um it gives you some insight into where i am and how i got here yeah i'm not without my lumps and bumps yeah understandably given them. given the circumstances but i think we all hold some trauma to a lesser or a greater degree it's how you process it mm. how you deal with it because contrary to popular belief it will always be there but it's really how you identify with it how you manage it yeah i i, I have difficult points i think everyone does 
But waking up every morning and the sun shining and being five minute walk from the beach, going to a gym and seeing fantastic people smiling and greeting you with a genuine greeting. Yeah. Going out for coffee, people watching, working remotely, going to the beach in the afternoon, going out for dinner in the evening with friends. There's a lot to be said for that. This is a great place. You mind me asking, what do you pay for rent? I'm very fortunate. I'm great at negotiating. Okay. And I identified a property on 38. Okay. And I nailed them down to 14,000 pesos a month. Which is in US dollars. I don't know. Cause divided by 18. Hold on. It's I'll about 600 and 650 pounds so probably about 800 bucks something like that 777 dollars yeah. oh, my math's not too bad still and it probably has a rooftop pool rooftop pool i have a balcony bills are included wow and it's enough for me yeah um and i i could certainly afford more but i came to the conclusion a long time ago i'm certainly not frugal but i came to the conclusion a long time ago take what you need that's enough for me. I I use that as a base. That's where I sleep. So you're like 38th and what, 10th or 15? Okay, somewhere in there. Cool. Um, so really centrally located. Yeah. It's a 10-minute walk to the beach, five-minute walk to the gym. You've got some lovely coffee shops around there, which is a big passion of mine. I love to um, walk to the coffee shop in the morning, have an espresso, do a bit of people watching, go to the gym. It's, a, it's part of my routine. It's a good life. It is a good life. Um, One thing, though, that surprised me when we were talking yesterday. How big my arms are? You don't plan to have kids. No, I do not. You think you'll ever regret that? No. Never? No, I have fleeting moments of regret that last all about two seconds. Well, let me tell you why I ask, because earlier you mentioned we have hormones in us for thousands of years. So you're talking about an unbroken chain of humans that have led to you for thousands of years and then you're going to stop that you're going to say oh no it's going to stop with me yes which is a shame considering my genes i i agree yeah i am ubermensch anyone that knows (laughs) nietzsche if you don't look it up the wrong people are are reproducing we need we need (laughs) you bro (laughs) yeah yeah, i think it's just generally speaking there's too many people reproducing at the moment i think it's unnecessary but to answer your question there are several reasons firstly i've always been incredibly passionate about fitness i've always had a passion for travel and a career was always very important to me because I'm certainly not materialistic or money orientated, but money is a tool. It allows you to do the things that you want to do. And leading that lifestyle doesn't fit with having children. There's a huge amount of responsibility and more than I'm willing to take. And ideally, it would also mean having a long-term partner. Again, there's very few long-term partners that would be prepared to live the kind of lifestyle that I, that I live or aspire to. I've been told that I would be a, a good father. Um, and I think in the future, if the, the kind of the situation arose, I would love to mentor. And I look at kids with their father, sometimes playing on the sand, for instance, at the beach. And I, I kind of smile to myself and think, wow, that's an amazing experience because I didn't have that experience. Mm. I didn't have that kind of connection. 
I think that's an amazing experience. And then I hear them cry and I think, fuck no, I don't want that in my life. <laughs> do you know, I don't want a screaming child. I, like, I want to be able old. to go to the gym when I want to go to gym. I want to be able to go out for dinner with friends when I want. If I want to, I can take a taxi today to Cancun Airport and be in Medellin by mm. the afternoon. I can't do that with a child. Well, I could, but it would be highly irresponsible to leave a child by themselves. <laughs> yeah. I'm not suggesting I wouldn't do it, but... Okay, but let me ask you this. Go on. How many kids will you want when you're 73? None. Have you thought about that, though? What would be the benefit of having children at 73? Irrelevant of their age. What What's the benefit? What's the... What would be Probably grandchildren and getting together and having moments like you described earlier you could create that could you not create that with friends yes but i tend to think a lot so many people opt for the life of career and children mm. that you lose a lot of friends and it takes a lot of hard work to initiate getting together and sometimes you just give up and <laughs> you know it's like man it's just too Sorry, tough give up on what give up on trying to maintain the friendship because they're so busy and what ends up happening is they become but why friends are they busy because they have children exactly so if you took the children out of the equation i'm not yeah. suggesting that everyone do this right then you would be left with time available to yourself to to spend time with people that add value to your life yeah. that you can contribute to support, have interesting and insightful conversations with new mm -hmm. experiences with adventures. Yeah. I don't believe coming from a childhood that I came from. I don't believe that family is everything. And I'm mm. sorry because a lot of people will disagree with that. I don't either. I don't believe family is everything. And I see it on social media all the time. Family is everything. And I agree with you. I thank you. I don't believe that you can gain everything that you require from one person or even one group of people. Human beings are incredibly complex creatures and you start throwing into the equation various different experiences you've had as a child, as an adult, as you will continue to have as you progress through this life. You realize you can't gain everything from one person or, or one group. And it certainly shouldn't be by default just people that share the same blood as you. I think that is such an antiquated mm. theory this whole thing about bloodlines and family is everything. Mm. You put a family in a room together at Christmas. I don't know how many of those families are actually enjoying themselves. That's a good point. And they stress themselves out. And yeah, it's usually a miserable experience. That's exactly. a good point. Because what you're doing is forcibly asking people to sit together and have planned fun in a controlled environment. Now, what I would <laughs> rather do is spend my life collecting experiences having deep connections with people and identifying the types of people that i want to spend my time with that i can learn from that people can learn from me and if that means at christmas day here in playa or wherever i choose to be i then have brunch or lunch or go to the beach with various different individuals because i choose for those individuals to be close friends 
mm. and people that that resonate with me mm-hmm. and add value to my life that's way more important mm. than being thrown together in a room with people that you've got years of history with not always good and being obliged to have this kind of ceremonial lunch at christmas yeah. which i think is just it's just antiquated it's mm. ridiculous now i'm sure there are people that disagree and have amazing experiences with their families and and, and i think that's amazing that re i don't know that somehow gives me hope and it kind of reignites my my belief that that there is happiness within families but that's not my experience so i took the decision a long time ago to be self-sufficient to be resilient and depend upon myself and value deep connections with several individuals i don't feel the need to have lots of friends i'm very friendly and certainly i'm i will always show interest and compassion to others but actually the people that really matter in my life probably count on one hand because they're the ones that are dependable they're the ones that i believe are reliable uh they're the ones that add value to my life would they do for you what you did for your mom i don't know but would necessarily one of your family members do that you don't know until that point do you and actually uh, frankly i would never ask someone to do that for me because i've been resilient and self-sufficient for most of my life and i had always said that if i got to the point where i couldn't go to the toilet by myself that's it i'm done <laughs> what are you going to do shag under the head or we don't have guns in england we don't, oh that's I, true I, I, that's, that's your culture <laughs> <laughs> you can go to the states you don't have to do it yourself someone's going to do it for you um no um sorry i make light of that i shouldn't no um, you're right you go to south side of chicago yeah, and yeah somebody um, will get you no i Lot of, I would, t- I would just pills. take a huge amount of opioids. Yeah. I, yeah I, do you know what I mean? I see do what it. all the fuss is about. Yeah. I would just do a load <laughs> of opioids and maybe like a bottle of tequila and just like wade into the ocean. <laughs> I, you know, I saw if you if you go on YouTube and look up the tsunami in Thailand. Oh, great. Yeah, there's let's a, like end on a high. Fine, there's, there's a man who's like standing out in the shore <clears throat> and just waiting for it to come. Just standing there waiting for the big. That was yeah, not after, me. Yeah. I was literally running. <laughs> receding water. He went out and stood and right. just waited. And I, I was like, what is this guy doing? I don't know if he thought he was going to like swim with it or what. But to me, it looked like obvious suicide. Or well, it could have been that fight or flight. It could have just been overwhelmed. The knowledge that actually you can't run away from yeah. it if you're that close. I there- don't know. There is a spot in PP that recedes really far. Like right when you arrive on the island, back to your right, that area right there. Oh, there's a, yeah, that beach that kind of, there's a, from what I recall, there's a, a part of the beach that's kind of, that juts out. Isn't yes. There? Yeah. Yeah. That kind of scared me because I stayed overlooking that water the first time I went. So if you, arrive at the beach and walk all the way to the right, there are these little villas. Mm. And me and the friend I went with stayed in those villas. And all of a sudden, there was no water. You know, these cond- these villas weren't overlooking the water. And I thought, oh, shit, what if, what if there's another tsunami? Well, there's no pattern to it. 
Yeah. And there's now sufficient processes put in place to warn. Let you know, yeah, um, I figured. So as I mentioned before, we'd gone to Chiang Mai and that was really quite irrational thinking because it's not necessarily is a tsunami going to hit the same place twice. I don't know enough about the science behind it. It could be that tectonic plates mean that certain areas get hit more than others. I do not know. But I think the likelihood of it happening again to that degree is quite unlikely. I think we're more likely to, to be subject to nuclear fallout, really, <laughs> given current events. What do you make of current events? I'm going to be really honest with you now. Please. And I'm going to sound really ignorant. Between Brexit, COVID, and all the other messed up stuff that has happened over the course of like the last five years or so, I have no knowledge of current events. Now, really? in, yeah, in, in Britain, we, we're a nation of news lovers. We take pride in having a cup of tea in the morning and watching the news. And I, I came from a, a background where my father and my mother were quite political. They were socialist. Is um, that why you have the Che Guevara tattoo? Yeah. And I think I, as I was idealistic as a, as a child. And then you realize that kind of, although I, I believe in some of that ideology, I also believe that it's entirely unrealistic in what is a capitalist society. That's a whole different conversation. That's um, podcast number two. I'll be yeah. back. I'll <laughs> be back. I. <laughs> no, I don't want you to leave. I want you to stay here. You're not going back to Bristol or anything, are you? No, no, yeah. I'm, I'm here. Nothing You're is here. permanent, as I say. Yeah. Um, history has taught me that. Yeah. But I only plan like a, a year in advance, and I certainly plan to be here in, in Plyer for the next year. What were we talking about? News. So current events. Like you, if I said Ukraine, you, you'd have no clue? Oh, yes, of You'd have a I clue. Do. Okay, all right. But I think it's a very sensitive subject. Mm. There are both Ukrainians and Russians based here, and I wouldn't like to offend anyone. And quite frankly, I don't know enough about the subject matter to make an informed decision. And anybody that's, that's got an opinion without having a, a really sound knowledge, yeah. keep your mouth shut. I had a girl who lives here who is Ukrainian. Right. Or her last name is Ukrainian, but she's lived her life in Russia, and I had her on the podcast. Because of those those events, I took the decision that watching the news every morning was probably the worst morning routine that I could subject myself to. And morning routines are a big thing right now. Yeah, it's something that I've always done. Oh, yeah. And I, I realized that it wasn't adding value. And actually what it was doing is creating anxiety, frustration, irritability. Mm. We were bombarded with various different charts and statistics about deaths um, due to COVID. We were in a situation we were exiting Europe, which was a ridiculous concept in itself. And I just thought I'm coming away every morning, even before I've started work, feeling agitated. And there's some level of injustice about this because I don't have the ability to, I guess, influence it in any way. So I thought I'm going to create a social experiment here. I'm not going to watch the news for a month or so and see how I feel. Instantly, I felt better. And it may be ignorance, but ignorance is bliss. I know what I know. And at 45... I've formed my own opinions. Um, Some of those opinions are are subject to change. I do have a growth mindset. Yeah. But 
I know right from wrong. And if, for instance, we were to discuss certain events, irrelevant of whether or not I have a knowledge of that event, I'd have to really consider whether or not I wanted to discuss it. Because mm. I think it's important that you have a working knowledge from an independent source before you can formulate an opinion. Oh, I think you should know both sides yeah. of most. But it's people think they know both sides. Yeah, and because of what their side has given yeah. them. Yeah, uh, and, you're right. Uh, I, I don't know if you're aware of the theory of confirmation bias. Oh, of course, yeah. So for your listeners that possibly don't know what confirmation bias, we, we are attracted to individuals or information that reconfirm our thoughts, our yeah, beliefs. And that's, that's right. why we hang around with people that look like us. <laughs> Do you want to do some fun questions before we get out? Yes, Social media. Do you think that's a net negative or net positive for society? A blessing and a curse. I think the intention was to connect people and it still does that. And I, st I think there are some phenomenal individuals out there that are creating fantastic content. I make it a point as part of my morning routine to watch or listen to a podcast every morning. And whether that be Huberman Labs, Rich Roll, Tim Ferriss, but it has to add value to my life. Watching innate TikTok videos <laughs> or people just constantly taking selfies. Yeah, you've got to curate your, yeah, your online life. Demonstrating their you... extreme political beliefs provoking people just for clickbait, all of that sort of stuff, I think is incredibly negative. I also think that it's being abused and it's going to probably be the beginning of the end of society. I think there's a huge amount of pressure on people, especially young people, to conform. And we live in a society now that everything's perfect and we require instantaneous gratification. And there's a genuine belief by a certain generation now that that's obtainable and that's acceptable. And I think as a young person, whether it be male or female, you're being placed under a huge amount of pressure to be perfect. Yes. In the UK, men are actually outnumbering women now for body dysmorphia, forms of eating disorders, because they are subjecting themselves to these kind of images. And if we, if we take it back a step, we as human beings haven't really evolved that much. And we, we touched on this earlier with yeah. regards to testosterone, estrogen, and so on. So we haven't really, our brains haven't really developed. Yet we, I think on average, are subject to something like 60,000 images a day if you're on TikTok, which is not something I participate in because, frankly, they have got life. Yeah. Um, but your brain isn't built to sustain that amount of information we're not built for that and how can we realistically process that information and have deep and meaningful conversations at the same time with another human being people don't value that why are you looking, most people don't look, value deep conversation look in a bar look in a restaurant look in any social setting and you have partners a, a mother and a father children all sat around a table your loved one 
sat down to dinner and you're both on social media. You've got a human being literally across the table from you. Let's have a conversation. Let's talk about your day. Let's talk about my day. Let's talk about current events. I'd rather not. Let's talk about our next adventure, where we want to go, what we want to do. Let's talk about what we're going to do when when we get home, what we're going to do tomorrow. That's my next question. If you could go anywhere for a month tomorrow at no charge, where would you go? This time of year? Right now. Brazil. Brazil. Have you never been? Yes. Yeah, I've spent about three months in Brazil. Mm, I loved it. I loved it. I loved the the culture. The beaches are incredible. The Just the passion. Once you start to get to the north, like Praia da Pipa, you've got Salvador, which is a very different environment from that of the remainder of Brazil. It was it was like the main port for the the slaves to enter into Brazil. So you've got a lot of heritage from the Congo. So it's it, it creates a very deep, enriched kind of community there. You've got Rio, which is just super sexy. They are possibly the most beautiful women in the world. The people are passionate. They're outgoing. They're fun. You've got some great bars, restaurants. It's just a great place to be. And we're looking at a Rio Carnival. So what's not to love about it? I hear you. On a scale of 1 to 10, 10 being the most funny, where does Trevor Noah rank on that 1 to 10 scale? As an English person? Just as a person. Is he? Six. Six. I'd give him a weak six. So you think he's a little, okay. I think he's not on the scale, like he's not funny at all. Yeah, I'm being nice. He's South African, so he kind of has Whoa, what are you trying to say? He kind of has a similar accent, maybe that's why right, I asked. No, but um, I've asked I, other people I, too. I, Comedians, Bill Burr. Bill Burr. Jim oh. Jeffries. Yeah. Ricky Gervais. Yeah. Obviously. Love Kevin Hart. Oh, yeah, me too. That's my wife's favorite comedian. Yeah. I like inappropriate behavior. Mm. I like people that are prepared to push boundaries. I like people that are, are kind of self-deprecating, which is a very English trait, not so much American. Right. Because you guys are brought up in a very different kind of culture. Yeah. Whereas we're quite comfortable making fun of ourselves and our insecurities and our inadequacies. Mm -hmm. And I think there's something quite healthy about that. Although a lot of life coaches would say you should never say anything negative about yourself. Mm -hmm. Well, let's be honest. We're human beings. We all have negative traits. Sure. Let's flip that and make them funny and acceptable and (laughs) yeah continue to work on them for sure but you shouldn't take yourself too seriously how long do you think you could survive in solitary confinement and what would you do i've been in solitary confinement for like 45 years mate okay so then my next question (laughs) is irrelevant if i gave you a hundred thousand dollars worth of stock in one of these three companies spotify pinterest or meta where would you put the money? Meta. Meta. I think we're in a situation where Meta has seen, unfortunately, due to various decisions that have been made by the owner, that it has <laughs> hit all-time lows practically. Um, mm-hmm. But that's not a true reflection of his intrinsic value. I mm-hmm. think we forget what Meta consists of, the services that it provides and the future of meta and social media. It's not, you have to remember that stocks are driven by a lot by emotion for a lot of people. They're driven by what we perceive the value to be at that point. 
by what we call fundamental analysis. So what's going on in the world, the greater picture. But if you look about the intrinsic value, you look at the cash that it's holding. It's a phenomenal stock. You own it? Yeah, long-term position. I keep buying it up. I've held Meta for a number of years. And even after various different blunders by Zuckerberg, I've continued to buy at dips. And I believe that it will pay dividends in the future. How many individual stocks do you own? I have a collection of several portfolios comprising of approximately 42 stocks. So some of those will be long-term positions, some are swing trades. Give me your top three long-term holds. Ooh, I wasn't prepared for this one. My advice, as opposed to just answering that off the cuff, my advice with long-term positions is you don't want sexy stock. You don't want the stuff that's doing two, 300% in a year because it could quite easily just go back down two, 300%. You want something that will provide incremental growth year on year that within that industry provides the best option that is on the cusp of that particular industry and is able to diversify and continually produce uh, new services within that industry and possibly other industries. So do you have two or three that you can name? Okay. Apple, Amazon, and I'm going to go with Soundhound. 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 I'm not familiar, but I will look it up. What percentage likelihood would you give the coronavirus being deliberately unleashed on the world? That's not a conversation I feel comfortable with having. You don't um, think there's any percentage but only likelihood? It goes back to my earlier point. I, you don't know enough? I don't know enough to make okay. an informed decision. Okay. What did you make of the balloon that flew across America unabated? Did you know about that? I did. Yeah, if, I'm not completely ignorant of current events. If it I flew just, across England, would you have just let it fly across? Or of do you, course, we're British. We'd yeah. probably invite them for a cup of tea. Um, we <laughs> it's a balloon. A, we would uh, make a big song and dance about it and done absolutely nothing. Okay. I, well, that's what I, we did. I don't believe it would be necessary to shoot it down. I don't think there would have been any value in doing so. I think that was a, more about flexing. And in the current climate, I don't think it would have served anyone's purpose to agitate the situation any further. Um, whether or not it was blown off course, whether or not there was an ulterior motive, did it really matter? Ben, dude, I may call this episode the most interesting man in the world. So I appreciate oh, you being you here. Really You've got an that. incredible story. There's more. So we could do number two if you wish yeah, at some point. I would point. love to. How can people connect with you online and learn more about what you do? And I know you have this company called Prestige. Tell us about that, if you don't yeah, mind. Yeah, Prestige Luxury Experiences, uh, very briefly, is, is a company that myself and my business partner, a Mexican uh, doctor, had set up. We basically identified a gap in the market whereby we're providing a lifestyle design service here in Playa. As you know, a lot of people come here on vacation, fall in love with it. I'm not really sure how to make the next step. So we provide, for instance, accommodation. 
We work with a local realtor. We also provide aesthetic treatments by like Botox, dermal fillers, teeth whitening. So we work with local businesses. We also work with a number of restaurants, beach clubs, with uh, rooftop pools. So we will then essentially take all the stress and uncertainty out of your experience. And if and when you're ready to then relocate, we have the ability to do so via immigration lawyers. So what I'm doing is taking experts from every field and working together um, in order to provide an excellent service for our clients to have the kind of the best experience possible. Beautiful. So where could they go to find more information? Uh, they can go to the Instagram page. That's prestige underscore luxury underscore experiences. Alternatively, prestige luxury experiences at proton.me. Awesome. Ben, thank you so much for doing this. Thank you. Thank you.